Perfect. Peter, thank you so much for hopping on the Creators Canvas. <laughs> yeah, so, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, Peter, you know, where I wanted to start is people have things that they want to do, and then they have things that they're actually doing. Oftentimes, it's so hard to bridge the gap between the two. How can people bridge that gap? Well, first of all, you need to know what you want to accomplish in your life. So my, uh, let's say 80% of my clients, they have some struggles with what is called personal vision. So basically they are somehow lost, even though they are very successful, they can have the best universities, they can uh, have successful jobs, but sometimes we are lost, we lack purpose. So the first tool that I'm teaching people is truly to sit still and think about your life vision for the future. Like what are your strengths, how you can use them, uh, what are your values and what do you truly want to accomplish in your life? And since you have the strong vision, then it's easier to find those uh, two tasks that you want to focus on. Do you find that people have an absence of purpose more than ever? Yeah, definitely. There is a lot of data about that. Uh, lack of purpose is one of those main reasons of growth of depression in Western world. So truly, like even though we live in an amazing world, like 21st century is amazing. We have technologies, we have freedom, we have freedom to travel, we have internet, we have uh, almost everything. Like if you compare us to some um, like people in middle ages, we live in an amazing world. But the problem yes. is that sometimes we lack purpose because uh, when you have a freedom to choose, well, sometimes it's difficult to choose at all. And we experience what is called decision paralysis. Like we have so many choices and we can do almost everything. And at the end of the day, we are unable to decide and we are overwhelmed by those choices. Yeah, the best analogy I've heard is, you know, nowadays when you go to the grocery store, if you're just looking for a bag of chips, there's literally yeah. 50 chips. And the time it takes to choose before you leave is exponentially higher than when there was just, you know, like three options. And so, right. yeah. you know, in this world where we're paralyzed by the number of roads that we can go, how can people better choose a road so that they're not paralyzed by all of the different options? Well, I think that uh, this starts uh, at schools because uh, we should redesign schools to focus more on strengths. Because uh, if you understand what are your unique strengths, for example, someone is systematic, someone is creative, someone loves to work with technology, someone loves to work with people. So if you uncover your unique strengths, this is the first step, uh, to understanding yourself and using your strengths for something meaningful. For example, I truly love drawing. I'm very yep. visual. I'm a visual thinker. So when I wrote a book, the book consists of more than 100 simple pictures. Because my key skill is uh, to simplify science and to explain things visually. So I combine my desire to help people to understand science behind motivation, procrastination, but I also deploy my skill that is drawing those simple pictures. So I think that we truly need to change schools to focus in more, more on strengths and we need to like, help people uh, at workspace also to build up their strengths rather than to struggle with their weaknesses. It's interesting. If I use myself as you know, um, a case study, mm -hmm. the challenge for me wasn't building up my strength, but it was identifying it. So I'm 29 and I put 
real thoughts into, you know, what my strengths were probably mm -hmm. intentionally, probably about last year. But it took me, you know, 28 years to figure out, you know, what that was. And so, you know, Peter, if I was your client and you were working with me to try and identify what my strength was, you know, what are some things you would walk me through? And I imagine <clears throat> some listeners could benefit from hearing that exercise. Yeah. First of all, you are very lucky eh? because uh, <laughs> some people, they never, never find their, their strengths, even mm. though they are in their 60s, 70s, they still don't know. So good news, <laughs> you are on the a, on a right path. And what are those tools that you can, you can do to uncover your strengths? Well, uh, there are some questionnaires. Uh, definitely the best on the market is the, the questionnaire that is called Strength Finder mm. from, from uh, Gallup Institute. And of course, you can just sit and think because uh, in my book, I use the tool that is called Personal SWOT Analysis. Basically, you ask yourself, like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are uh, those uh, opportunities in your life? And what are the main threats that are uh, in the path uh, in front of you? And if you, like, sit and think, that's the, truly the first step because a lot of people, they procrastinate to uh, think about those, uh, those truly crucial and essential things about life. So another practical tool can be what I call meeting with yourself. So basically in my calendar, every Sunday, I, I have uh, an event that is like to meet myself. I love uh, Japanese green tea. So I sit with myself, I take my paper and I ask those simple questions. It's like uh, self-coaching. Like you, you ask yourself, okay, on a scale one to 10, uh, how you are happy these days? Well, now I'm like nine out of 10. So what can I improve uh, for for the next week, what can I focus on? And you can like deploy this habit of coaching yourself. And this can help you a lot because then you have like pattern that, that, that you are able to follow and every meeting you gradually improve. So I don't believe in huge changes in life yet. Like you cannot change yourself from one day to another. It's almost impossible because you cannot rewire your brain from one day to another. But I truly believe in those small steps. So if you meet with yourself every week, Sunday for one hour, and you focus on those small steps, you can be a completely different person in the next half a year. I think it's so important you set that expectation of change isn't going to happen mm -hmm. overnight. Oftentimes, I think people can feel overwhelmed by looking at the stack of work that they have to yeah. do. And then from that, you know, not only do they face decision paralysis, but they also mm -hmm. face, you know, paralysis looking at how much they need to do and get, you know, concerned about that. And yeah. so, you know, in your experience coaching, you know, what have been, what have been some things that you've learned and kind of opened your eyes to that you didn't know beforehand? Well, when I was writing the book, uh, my first book that is called The End of Procrastination, it was twice painful to procrastinate writing a book about procrastination. <laughs> and I remember that at the beginning, I, I made a, a, a goal or I put in my to-do list like to write a chapter. And to write a chapter was a huge task. So I was procrastinating that because the bigger the task is, the, the bigger is the negative and negative aversion or negative feelings that you are you are uh, having towards the task but 
I discussed it with my publisher and my, my publisher told me like, oh, do not focus on writing a chapter. Focus on writing two paragraphs daily. So I completely switched my plan and my plan was to write two paragraphs daily. And everyone can write two paragraphs. And for me, like if you decrease the amount of the activity, you even decrease the those negative feelings, the, the aversion that you have and you are much more productive. So focus on small steps. And uh, this is the truly crucial part of recent science uh, about willpower and habits. They call this micro habits. Less is more. Truly less is more. So if you focus on those small details, but you are able to repeat them, you build a new habit and it's easier for you to, to continue and carry on. <clears throat> What's interesting when it comes to habits, I, I heard this fascinating perspective, you know, which is, if someone is trying to build good habits, they just need to recognize that they've, they're already good at building habits. They just have built the wrong ones. Mm -hmm. And so if we can <laughs> use that energy yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, we've, that we've done to you know, build those bad habits and use them you know, to build the good habits, then right. you know, hopefully we can kind of set the foundation for uh, what we want to accomplish. Well, if you are able to brush your teeth, well, you are able to do whatever because our brain works in the same way in different habits. You need repetition, you need to start with small steps, and with small steps you are able to accomplish those huge things. Like you can train and run marathon, but you have to start with, with small steps because if you start running tomorrow and when you go and uh, run 10 miles, well, you can like truly undermine your motivation for the future because it's, it's a huge amount of activity. But if you want to start running and if you tell yourself to run, I don't know, 500 feet or, or to wear some sportswear and go out and go back, yeah, there's always smaller step that is completely fine. And if you focus on those small steps and you are persistent, you are already the winner. Something that you touched on was, you know, setting big goals. And one thing you talked about was, you know, running a marathon and breaking mm -hmm. that down into small steps. I think sometimes what holds people back from setting a big goal mm -hmm. are limiting beliefs that they don't even know that they've put on themselves. And something you touch upon, you know, in your book is, you know, this ability to, you know, break out of these limiting beliefs. Yeah. Can you talk about how we can go about, you know, tactically doing that? Mm -hmm. Well, the main uh, drawback or the, the main problem that we all experience is fear, right? So, and sometimes we have a fear of failure. So the bigger the goal is, the bigger is the fear of failure. So I encourage people to truly change the mindset about failure. Because when you fail, it means that you tried before. And to try is already a win. So sometimes like people, uh, they are focusing only on wins. But I don't care about the outcome. Yeah, I care that I tried. So the more you try, well, there is, again, science behind that. The more you try, the happier you are because you are able to learn new things. You are able to live outside of your comfort zone. So you are building your, your willpower. So uh, sometimes people, they are depressed or they are anxious because they are unable to change their patterns uh, of, of behavior and thinking. And I encourage people just to try things to try new things and be completely okay with the failure. Because there is a beautiful study that even though when you fail, at the end of the day, you feel happier 
and more fulfilled compared to people that they never tried. So be like the guy in the film, Yes Man. Yeah? You, you maybe know the film. Like yes. He was telling yes to all, all possibilities, all, all opportunities in life. And sometimes he failed, but it's completely okay. So do not focus on the result. Focus on the ability to try. Ultimately, I think, you know, what you touch upon is if we don't try, then 30 years from that point, you know, we'll have regret. Yes. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, what you've talked about, you know, with your clients and, you know, from the research you've done is, you know, ultimately it's this regret of not having tried at all that mm -hmm. people regret, you know, when, yeah. you know, they're on their deathbed. And so when you kind of think about, you know, why this work is so important to you, Peter, you know, what, what resonates with you? Well, I think that we often forget about the fact that life is finite, life yes. is short, and every minute that is wasted is basically wasted forever. And we often value our money. So we usually are trying to save our money. We are trying to collect it, but uh, you can't do that with our time, right? So uh, truly every wasted minute is wasted forever. And nowadays we are forgetting that the time is the most valuable resource that we all have. We are spending so, so crazy amount of time on social media, uselessly scrolling. Uh, we are hooked on those algorithms because they are getting better and better in terms of serving us uh, content that uh, can truly like trigger our, our dopamine system. And I truly think that uh, sometimes we need to think about that because life is short. We are going to die in the future. And I don't want to waste my life on, on Netflix. I don't want to waste my life by scrolling. I want to accomplish something meaningful, like uh, to build meaningful relationships, to do work that I truly believe that has some positive impact on, on others and on the, the world as a whole. And I think that, like, yeah, life is short. But I'm not scared of that. I'm scared that I, I want to fulfill my potential here. So that's why I wrote a book. That's why I'm trying to like uh, overcome my own comfort zones because uh, I think that we all have similar struggles. We, it doesn't matter if you live in Asia or Europe or the US. Uh, I had a chance to live in different countries, different cultures, and we all use the same iPhones. We all use the same Instagram and we are all procrastinating in a very similar way. So I think that sometimes to realize that life is finite and to realize that we don't want to waste our time with meaningless activities is the first step. So value of time is crucial. It sounds like you have a very strong and crystallized vision of what mm -hmm. future you want and the purpose that you know, you're serving for yourself, Peter. <clears throat> Earlier, you mentioned there's this sense that there is the most lack of purpose, you know, that there has ever been in a while. And yeah. we reviewed, you know, kind of, you know, reasons that, you know, we kind of, you know, see that happening. So what do you think happens when a society has too many people living without purpose for an extended period of time? Well, so first of all, my case is much easier because my purpose is to help others to find their purpose. So <laughs> I call this like meta-purpose. And if you are a, a leader or if you have your own startup or if you are uh, a manager, you should like have a purpose to help others. Uh, 
to find their purpose. And this is a truly source of good leadership. So I think that in the future, we truly need more good leaders. And we need leaders not just to focus on results and outcomes and KPIs or whatever, but we need leaders that are able to understand their colleagues, understand their strengths and helping them to to see meaning and purpose of their work and help them to uh, have higher self-esteem by giving them positive feedback and so on. And especially in the era of artificial intelligence, yeah, we already are experiencing that workspace is changing tremendously. And there is a very sad definition or very sad term that is called useless class. It's a term from Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote three bestsellers, Sapiens, Homo Deus, and 21 Lessons for 21st Century. And he's basically describing that AI won't just take jobs, but when AI will be faster, cheaper, and better than those employees, they won't just lose their jobs, but they also lose their self-esteem and they lose their purpose. So my estimation is that in a short term, we experience growth of depression again with AI. In the long term, basically, AI will help us to find a solution. But in the short term, it can be, it can be a huge problem because companies are already using AI, those uh, large language models. And if you are an average uh, interpreter or if you are an average graphic designer, in a few years, maybe in a few months, you will have a problem. So we have to prepare the society for this transition. And the best thing to prepare is with the good leadership. We need good examples and we need to have a courage to work on our skills and to reskill ourselves with AI. <coughs> Do you think that it's possible to instill a growth mindset in someone that doesn't have one or isn't aware that they don't even have one? You know, when I think about mm -hmm. this need to you know, reskill the class that's going to get replaced by AI. I think that is a, a huge barrier to entry, you know, which is how can we encourage these people to grow beyond where they are mm -hmm. now so that they can then be prepared to uh, face that challenge when it comes? Well, th this is a brilliant question because uh, I think that this is the core of the solution because people with fixed mindset, they are not aware that they have fixed mindset. Yes. So basically, if you tell them that they need to reskill themselves, they don't believe that. Yeah. So, so truly, we need to start with the mindset. So that's why I have a new talk that is called like growth mindset about artificial intelligence. Oh, and awesome. I'm trying to go around the world and explain people that this is not a, a, this is not a bubble, right? So AI is here and it's getting better. And if you want to survive or if you want to be successful, you truly need to be able to try those tools. You truly need to be able to, to overcome your comfort zone and try to learn new things, new skills, because this is the 21st century. We truly need mindset and we need new skills. <coughs> Sorry, I'm going to get water. You Take your time. Take your time.
Yeah, much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the tw- in the 21st century, people need to develop, you know, new skills and also mindset. And so, you know, with that, how do you think people can go about, you know, breaking through that fixed mindset? Because, you know, you, you know, mentioned, you know, the part that you played is, you know, trying to educate people as to where things are going, but then, you know, whether that lands with them internally or not, you know, it's up to them. Do you think it's out of our control? Well, of course, this starts in families. We have data that your fixed mindset is highly influenced by the fixed mindset of your parents. Yes. And their fixed mindset was highly influenced by their parents. So it's like a cascade. So good thing is that we don't um, get the mindset through our genes. That's a good part. Like you can have identical twins. And if they are raised in different families, one of those twins can have fixed mindset and the other can have growth mindset. So mindset is nothing inborn. It's basically a bad habit that you can uh, change during your life. But it starts in families. Then you, you are uh, visiting schools. So your teachers can uh, influence you a lot too. So basically they made a long-term study with best teachers. And the outcome was that the, those best teachers, they have growth mindset and they are helping their kids or uh, their, their peers to, to also have a growth mindset. So, and the third level are companies, corporations, because we spend one third of our lives at work. And yes. what can influence a lot are those leaders with growth, growth mindset. So that's why I'm more focusing on leadership because, well, it's difficult to change parents. It's difficult to change families. It's very difficult to change schools because the system is very uh, rigid or uh, it's, it's very stuck. But uh, yes. I think that you can change companies a lot because, well, for companies, they have uh, motivation to, to improve the workspace because uh, you don't want to have employees with depression. You don't want to have employees with burnout. You don't want to have employees that, that are uh, unable to reskill themselves. So nowadays, good news, big companies are investing a lot in those mindset trainings and especially leadership training. So, so I do trainings uh, about purpose-driven organizations, how to build a workspace that is driven by purpose. And it starts with, with those leaders because as, as the old saying is, is describing the fish things from the hat and you have to start with the mindset of those leaders. So if you have a leader, if you have a, a manager with fixed mindset, it's completely difficult to help to change his team. But if you are able to help those leaders with their mindset, then you can influence a lot of people in, in their companies and in the society as a whole. So I think it starts with the leadership and we need more positive examples of those leaders because um, mm. I think that truly this world needs many, many changes in terms of changing school schooling, in terms of changing workspace and work environment. But AI is now pushing us a lot. And I think that companies that they are able to do this transition will be successful and companies uh, that uh, want to do this transition will be uh, in a huge problem. I love 
the responsibility that you put on you know companies and the leadership at companies to try and instill that type of you know mindset and growth in you know the people that they work with especially because it benefits both sides so one trend that we've been seeing peter is employees quiet quitting mm-hmm. where do you think that comes from well there is a new study like few few years two three years old and the outcome of the study is uh, something that they call purpose gap. And it, it's uh, about the fact that around 86% of companies, they have what is called stated purpose. They have their, their mission statements, they have their values, but only like 25% of employees, they have what is called activated purpose. They truly feel purpose at work. So this, this is the purpose gap. Like everyone is talking about purpose, but almost all employees, they think that those are empty phrases. So what I think that one of those solutions is truly to have honest purpose, like not empty words, not empty phrases. And again, it starts with authentic leadership. Like some of those leaders, they are talking, talking, but they are not living those values. And values are not things that you put on walls. Values are things that you live. So this is truly like the beginning, like uncover your values and live according to them and not just use mission statements and values as empty phrases because it doesn't work. It can even undermine people's motivation when it's fake. So so I think that truly it starts with your you being honest with yourself and uncover your like real real values and live according to them and have a courage sometimes to say no sometimes to say i was wrong sometimes to say i don't know and humbleness is crucial because uh if you have those leaders that are uh having those truths with capital t they are black or white they are very dangerous i think that the world is very complex and we need more leaders that are able to to be humble and that are able to say i don't know and I was wrong. A beautiful example of leadership admitting their mistakes was about some time last year when tech was doing a lot of layoffs. Mm -hmm. There was a Stripe, you know, the big payment processor, you know, out of Silicon Valley. And I think they had to lay off a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand of employees. And what they did was, you know, the, the CEO and the founder he wrote a letter that stated these were the mistakes that leadership made and mm-hmm. these are what we're going to learn from in the future so that this doesn't happen again and we apologize for the oversight that we've done here. And Peter, that was so refreshing because yeah. at a time when big tech was doing a like myriad of layoffs, mm-hmm. you never saw that type of vulnerability and accountability in a, a leader to the people that they uh, were working for them. So my question to you is, and we can do a little bit of an exercise is, you know, say I am, I work at an Amazon Prime warehouse. And if you are tasked to, you know, coach leadership as to, you know, how they can help instill, you know, some honest purpose with, you know, people, you know, working on those delivery lines, how would you go about doing that? Because, you know, the, the first expectation is what purpose do I have other than, you know, to make my paycheck if I'm just a, a warehouse worker? 
Yeah, I used to work with many similar companies, like warehouse workers and those managers. And I think that the first step is truly focus on on human skills, like empathy and being able to communicate better. So the first purpose can be not about the work itself, but it can be about relationships. For example, I was working with a group of workers in a warehouse, and I asked them, like, when you feel the most fulfilled? And one of those workers said something like, like that, yeah, we have very good group of people here. When someone has a birthday, we are celebrating together. Sometimes we spend some time together, even like after the work, we, we uh, get some beers. And I told them like, mm. okay, even though you lack purpose at work, about the work itself, you can have a lot of purpose about building relationships with others to be in uh, like a nice part of, of the whole, nice part of the group. So sometimes I'm focusing on, on that, like not the work itself, but things around, like how, how you can uh, be better in giving positive feedback, how you can be better in terms of empathy, like how, how you can uh, do like those interviews and you can use coaching methods to uh, ask good questions and things, things, things like that. And about the work itself, I think that you can always like imagine that there is a client somewhere. And if you do your job well, you can be proud of because client get the delivery on time. Uh, if you are good and if you are a, a like good worker, uh, your colleagues are feeling better because they can uh, cooperate with you easily and so on. So basically for me, it's, not just about the work itself, but it's about your self-esteem and your uh, gratefulness for for the fact that you can be proud of your work. So for me, as a manager, I have 30 employees and the best moments of my life are when I'm proud of my colleagues, when they accomplish some, uh, something important, when they are successful. So it's not about my success. It's about their success and it's it, it feels much stronger to me when they are successful compared to my own success. So this is truly, again, about a good leadership. And sometimes I was working even with some heavy uh, machinery workers, and it's easier to find purpose there because they are building something with their hands. So sometimes it's mm. easier to find purpose in those uh, heavy, heavy industries rather than to, to find a purpose in office work somewhere in financial district in Manhattan. In Manhattan. <clears throat> what are some misconceptions that people have when it comes to leadership and what it means to actually be a good leader? I think well, oftentimes we have this expectation of what we see in the movies. Yeah, I think that the, there is a systemic problem because we have some data that in... Average population, you have 1% to 2% of psychopaths. People, they lack emotions, they lack empathy. But there is a beautiful study that on a sea level of big corporations, you have 5% of psychopaths. In politics, you have 5% of psychopaths. So somehow, the system is built in a wrong way because those people that are lacking empathy are growing faster and they are climbing the corporate ladder faster. So I think that if we want to have better leaders, 
we have to appreciate more people that are more humble, that are not like with like strong gestures, that like powerful leaders, because those powerful leaders, they are often selfish. Yeah, I have many examples from, from politics too. Yeah, So if, if you have those leaders that they have those truths with capital T, they are 100% sure about themselves. Some people, they love them, but they are dangerous because they are unable to admit their thoughts. So they are unable to learn new things. And sometimes they are like not cooperative. They are about like to fight for their opinions and they are not able to find some uh, common ground for discussion. So I think that we truly need to change the role model of good leaders. The good leader is not a selfish guy. No, the good leader is the one that is humble and is more in a gray scale, not in the like black or white uh, scale. So this is truly important to to help people to understand this because if you look to the history, like what were those most dangerous leaders, they were 100% sure about themselves. So <clears throat> there, there is a beautiful saying or the beautiful quote from Bertrand Russell who got the Nobel Prize in the uh, 20th century and he said something like this, like the problem of this world is that that people are very sure about themselves, but wise people are sure about nothing. So uh, something like that, yeah. So so we need more of those people that are able to to be more humbler and uh, use critical thinking and to be more uh, not on egoistic side side, but on the selfless side. So, Peter, uh, a little bit of an uh, exercise for you then. Mm -hmm. When is the last time you've changed your mind about something you were sure on? Well, I'm trying to uh, encourage what is called like the, the scout mindset. And scout mindset means that you build your personality uh, on exploration, yeah, like exploring things and oh, truly not to be because there's another mindset that is uh, called like the warrior mindset. Yeah? If you are a warrior, you, you already have your truth and you are fighting for your truth. But if you are a scout, you are exploring the world and sometimes you don't have uh, an opinion that is strong. You, you just uh, going around and ask questions and I'm trying to have this, this mindset. So sometimes... For example, in terms of politics, I'm very unsure about things. So sometimes I'm sharing my opinion on social media, of course. But uh, sometimes when mm, things change, I'm able to admit that I was wrong. And I'm trying to do that publicly. If you are asking me about some exact um, example, when I changed my opinion... Uh, it was a few days ago, I read some research on emotions. And it seems that in those old textbooks that uh, you have like six main emotions that everyone experiences, And the recent data shows that it's not truth. We don't have those primary emotions. It's much more complex. And even though I have a talk about emotional intelligence, I had to admit that I was wrong because science 
uh, is constantly updating itself. And sometimes you have to just tell people, well, last 10 years I was spreading something that is not truth anymore. And I'm very happy to admit that because this makes me happier. Like constantly you are upgrading your mental models. And with uh, new research, you have to be able to admit that maybe you are spreading some misinformation too, but that's how it works. So this is the like the what is called the uh, the scout mindset. So don't be a, a warrior. Try to be a scout and explore the world. Wow, so much to unpack there. You know, first just wanted to say I wouldn't classify that in the category of misinformation because you know I think we had good intentions when we believed those things. The research that you looked at that changed your opinion of what you thought about in the past. So mm -hmm. what was the new finding? So in the past, it mentioned that there are six of the core emotions. And then now, what does the study say? Well, it seems that uh, it's highly influenced by our culture, Western mm. culture. So if you learn at your textbooks that we have six uh, primary emotions, it's easier to follow those emotions and it's self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you do research somewhere in a, in, with those very separated cultures, it seems that they have completely different set of emotions and in different languages, they even have completely different names. And basically, like you can find a word for an emotion and it's completely different than we are using. So sometimes I feel that we also use this like on an everyday basis and we are forgetting that all those words that we are using are just kind of models. So for example, yesterday I was trying to Google if there is a one word for the, the well, I, I will describe it. I yeah, have a please. problem with, yeah, I have a problem in my life with my colleagues, employees, even with my life partner sometimes. Yeah. That they were unable to admit their fault. Yeah. Mm. So, and if you have people that are unable to admit their fault, it's difficult because you can give them feedback, but if they don't take a feedback, they don't take the feedback they, that they don't take feedback. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like a problem that you can, you can try to address, but it's impossible. And I yeah. was trying to Google if there is one word for that. And I asked ChatGPT, is there any, in any language, is there one word for this uh, whole, whole definition? And ChatGPT told me that in Spanish, there is one word describing exactly the same, what I described in a very <laughs> complex, complex, and um, in, in many, many words. So you can find uh, some definition in different and languages. what is the word? I don't know. I don't, I don't okay. speak Spanish, but it's in my... It's in the history of my ChatGPT. Gotcha, but gotcha. In Spanish, they have one word for people that are unable to f admit their faults. Wow. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to look at that one later. <laughs> that, 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 that's going to be good to keep in the back pocket. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love this topic of feedback because something that I kind of go back and forth about, Peter, mm -hmm. is... Is it the responsibility of the person giving the feedback to package it in a way that the receiver will receive well? 
Or is it the responsibility of the receiver to accept the gift of feedback in any way that it's given and it's up to them to separate signal from the noise? Well, uh, I guess that the truth is uh, like on both sides. <laughs> on both sides, you, you have to um, do something right. So if you are giving the feedback, you have to have a high level of empathy. So the feedback uh, has to be more about your own emotions rather than objective fact. Because if you did something wrong, I can't say that you did something wrong because you can get offended. But if I say, like, I feel sad uh, about the situation that happened, it's very easy. It's easier for you to understand because it's, it's not a, an objective fact and you have to respect my emotion. So it's better to talk about your own emotions rather than objective fact because it's difficult to disagree then. And, uh, of course, sometimes it's not just about empathy. It's about the amount of the feedback. For example, I mm. used to watch my colleagues' keynotes or workshops. I used to watch their recordings, and I know down like 20 mistakes that they made. And then I had a meeting with them, and I was like, okay, you did those 20 mistakes. And the next time, they were scared when I was visiting their events because they knew that I know down all their mistakes. Now what I do, I completely switch the, the, mm. the mindset about giving the feedback. Now I ask them, like on a scale 1 to 10, how good was your keynote today? And they are like, okay, it was 7. And I'm telling them, no, it was better. It was almost 9 out of 10. It was perfect. But here you have some tips how you can improve. And I can give them 20 tips how to be better. And because when you are on a scale 9 out of 10, it's already almost perfect. So if you use this uh, scaling 1 to 10, and you tell them, well, it was nine, so it was almost perfect, then it's easier to give them the feedback compared mm. to the fact that when you give them the list of mistakes, you can undermine their self-esteem. So I, when I do feedback with my colleagues, I usually say this, I use this scale one to 10, and I start about the question. I ask them how they rate themselves. And usually they are not saying 10 out of 10. So if yeah. they say something like eight, seven, nine, it means that there is scope for improvement. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so to repeat back what I heard is, you know, if we give them, you know, a scale and if they let them rate themselves. So if mm -hmm. I rate myself an eight, then I know it wasn't perfect. And if I know it wasn't perfect, then that means there is room to give, to be given feedback. Yes. So then yes. it's a way for me to kind of open myself up to be, being able to receive it well. Yeah, and I can like increase oh, your so self-esteem. I can increase your self-esteem because I tell you, well, it, it was perfect. It was nine out of 10. It was your best talk. But here are some minor changes that uh, you can deploy and improve even more. Wow, that's so interesting. I've always wondered why in performance reviews, we're always asked, how would you rate yourself? But then mm -hmm. now I understand it's this kind of mechanism that's very uh, intentionally put into the process to be able to like help the person to the most yeah. that it's possible. 
and it's all about framing, yeah? because you are basically giving the same set of information. But if you reframe it, like uh, what you can improve, it's it's much better framing that telling you what were your mistakes. Yeah, completely agree. So, Peter, I'm sure you're constantly staying up to date with you know what is new in you know terms of research and the work that you do. Are there anything interesting that has happened recently or any studies that you've been fascinated with in terms of learnings that have really like kind of been like, whoa, that's so cool. Yeah. I read a new research on a beautiful phenomenon that is called bedtime procrastination. So, and it seems that when you procrastinate, uh, basically your sleep, when you procrastinate going to your bed, it seems that you undermine your sleep. And the next day, you have much higher chance of procrastination and of procrastinating even more. So it's, a, again, the cycle that reinforces itself. So when you procrastinate your sleep, poor sleep means lower willpower the next day, lower self-regulation. So if you want to decrease your procrastination, you truly should focus on good sleep. And, for example, not to waste your dopamine on social media one or two hours before going to bed and set the exact time of going to bed and then do not use your phone because not just because of the blue light from the screen but also like if you use your social media it's often full of um, let's say content that can elicit your dopamine so basically you uh, when you are consuming a lot of content before going to sleep you can be more anxious you can uh, be more stressed because you can uh, read some news about uh, all those words, uh, wars around the world, and it's it's much more difficult to fall asleep. So do not use social media one or two uh, hours before going to bed. And the next morning, it's also very important not to waste your dopamine on social media because we have one pool of dopamine in the morning, and if you waste the dopamine on social media, you miss the dopamine for meaningful activities during the day. So you are less productive, less focused. Your memory is, is, is uh, worse. So it seems that social media is, uh, let's say, a huge problem of today's world. There is a new study of uh, the fact that TikTok algorithm is as addictive as crack cocaine. So it can truly rewire your brain. So uh, do not use social media two hours in the morning and two hours before sleep. And this can truly, truly improve your sleep and decrease your overall procrastination. You touch on this important topic of self-regulation. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to anything that we want to accomplish in life, whether that's you know to improve our procrastination or improve the habits that we have in life that will get us to where we want to go. It's all about our ability to self-regulate our decisions, those micro decisions that we make yeah. in a day. And so what is kind of your top checklist of things that we can do to make sure that we're always giving ourselves the best ability to be able to self-regulate in those moments where we're faced with like millions of micro decisions? Okay. So first it starts with the sleep. And so sleep more than seven, ideally eight hours. If you sleep less than six, you can be deprived. <coughs> the 
Next thing, uh, deploy some dopamine boost activities during the morning. So cold shower can boost your whole dopamine system in the morning and it can increase the level of dopamine for many hours. So cold showers are very good uh, in terms of self-regulation. Then to exercise, like if you exercise regularly, it also helps because we have one part of the brain that is all about willpower and you can boost this part of the brain by exercise and then you have stronger willpower in different domains like your work, your relationships and so on. So sleep, exercise, morning routines. Sometimes it's about decreasing the amount of alcohol that you you drink because another beautiful study that when you drink alcohol one day, you undermine your sleep, especially REM sleep that is about dreams. And the next day you have much weaker willpower. So now I have 30 days without alcohol and my energy is like three times higher. So sometimes I uh, encourage people to do like dry February or something like that to get rid of alcohol for one month and you see the difference. It's it's amazing. Like you are a different person. So that was sleep, alcohol, morning routines. And of course, Meditation can help a lot with your decision-making too because then you are more mindful about those decisions because you have to focus on the moment of the decision. So you have to be mindful that now the decision is is coming. And if you are not mindful, you just act according to your, your subconscious uh, patterns and you are following those old patterns. And if you want to change yourself, you have to be mindful first Yes, And you have to do the right decision. And with those small steps, you build new habits. So mindfulness is also crucial. Yeah, beautifully said. You know, I think sometimes people can fall into the trap of, you know, this cycle of I didn't do what I wanted. Well, I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And so they beat themselves up for it. And they think like, okay, I'm a terrible person. I must not Mm -hmm. want this. But it's like, are you doing the things to set yourself up to give yourself the highest chance of success? to make those good decisions. And so, you know, Peter, we have about, you know, 10 minutes left and I, I really wanted to, you know, do, you know, an exercise that we could leave, you know, the viewers with. And so, you know, would you be down for a little role playing? So if I came to you and I said, Peter, I am procrastinating on, you know, something that is important to me, mm-hmm. uh, how would you approach that conversation? Well, I get some, some more water because yeah. if you have 10 minutes, I, I'm done. Let's do it. <laughs> Yep. So you are a huge procrastinator, right? Yes. And then I'm I'm hoping my yeah, an exercise that people can take themselves through, you know, um, as they listen to this. Mm, I usually start with the question, like on a scale one to 10, how happy you are if you, if you think about the last month and uh, on average on a scale one to 10, how happy you, you were uh, the last month? Mm. Tell me. Tell me the number. Good question. I would say uh, about a six. Six. Okay. So 
now I can change your life from one day to another, but now we can focus how to increase the six to, let's say, seven or eight. So what are those small steps that you can change in your life to feel better? And then with my clients, we discuss all those uh, options that they have. For example, they are uh, anxious about their work, for example, because of the toxic working environment. They have toxic bosses. So we are discussing like what they can do, like to give the boss feedback or to change the work, to change their job, or to discuss that with uh, someone else, for example, to find a good psychotherapist. And you can always find many, many choices. And the moment that you already have those choices, you feel more relaxed, like your anxiety goes down because you see that you have a problem, uh-huh. of course, but you see that there are many solutions. So this is the first step, like to understand what are main problems that you have, what are those things that you can improve. My favorite question is if, if you have a magic wand and if you are able to change a few things in your life, what uh, could you change or what, what do you want to change? Shall we, shall we go through that exercise? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you want to role play? Here we go. Yes, let's do it. So, <clears throat> I think for me, if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing, it would be keeping my promise to myself of when mm-hmm. I say I'm going to do something. Okay. So, this is this is truly truly beautiful. Uh, thing because like we can now dig deeper like why you are not fulfilling your own promises because sometimes we understand that we are unable to follow orders from our parents we are unable to follow orders from our bosses but why we are unable to even follow our own orders (laughs) yeah sometimes I order myself to do something and I, I'm not able to, to do that too. And I think that sometimes we have two, two big goals. Yeah. Like we have those big, big uh, things that we want to accomplish. And it's definitely difficult to start to work on those big things because, uh, as we mentioned uh, before, the bigger the activity is, the bigger is your negative emotion and uh, the more you procrastinate. So I would start to uncover your your life vision. So what do you want to accomplish in your life? What are your uh, main main goals? Or what, what are those things that you truly want to focus? For me, there are... I, I don't know if you're a religious, Peter, but mm-hmm. um, I, I'm a little bit on the religious side. So... I think about, you know, gifts that I was given, you know, mm-hmm. by God. And that's something I've been reflecting a lot on lately. And there are two gifts that I feel like I was given. And my goals are related to those gifts. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So yeah. the, fir- the first one is I do feel like I was given a gift to listen to people. You know, that's, you know, kind of where all of my content was born from. And mm-hmm. it, it's something that gives me a lot of purpose 
you know, whether I'm talking to, you know, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, or I'm doing a street interview with someone, you know, random stranger, like my desire to listen to them is equal. And I think that's like a gift that I was given is like, this is purely, purely genuine. It is. And so the first goal is, I would like to continue to cultivate that gift. Mm -hmm. And the second gift is, I've always loved uh, business. That mm-hmm. that's you know what I when I find myself having free time, that's what you know my mind resonates to, and I would like to continue to work on that goal. And so those are my two big goals. Oh, that's great! So um, I think that compared to other of my clients, you are already you are already in a very very good state because you already know your strengths. You already have some of your visions and I recommend you to sit and write down everything on one paper. I wrote down my first personal vision like 12 years ago and I still have the paper somewhere. And then every year I upgraded uh, and updated the vision. So I have, I don't know, more than 10 papers and sometimes it's very similar yeah there are only mi- minor changes but sometimes i'm able to come up with some new projects because i i can ask myself like okay the world is changing so my vision has to change too so nowadays uh, i have three priorities in my life first is accomplish a new book i'm working on a new book about purpose Wow. And especially like how to find a purpose in life and at work in the era of algorithms and AI. So basically, this is the core of my work now, The those topics that we discussed during this interview too. The second goal that I have is to move to Singapore and to build my business from scratch there because I already have the experience of building my own business in the US, in New York. And now I want to try something in Asia because my book has been translated in many Asian languages and being in Asia is somehow uplifting for me. So this is the second big part of my my vision. And and the third part of my vision is truly to address the AI era and help people to understand that AI is happening and it will shape workspace a lot. So I want to do some talks and keynotes about the, the those future risk risks about AI and uh, the, the useless class and those things that we discussed. And I put those three priorities into my vision just recently, a few months ago, but now it's wow. kind of clear. Yeah, I know what to focus. And when I know and when I have those goals that, that are clear, it's much easier to focus on, on building those things on a daily basis. And I love the old saying that the path is the destination. So I'm not telling myself that I will be happy when I reach those goals because my goals are more like path. Yeah, if, if my goal is to help people to understand risks of AI, I can do that today, I can do that tomorrow, and I can do that probably in five years too. So focus on journey rather than the destination. So my goal is not to write a new book. My goal is to sit and enjoy the process of writing and uh, to help people to have better life. So I'm not writing because of uh, that I want to accomplish the book. I, I'm writing because it has a, a huge meaning for me 
to do something meaningful for others. Wow, that was so beautiful, Peter. Um, thank you so much for taking me through that. And I, I love how you talked about the evolution of yours, you know, over the past 12 years, because it sounds like it'll always be something that will grow. Mm -hmm. And just wanted to say thank you so much for taking me through that exercise. And I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much, too. Yeah.